Good morning. Luke chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning, so go ahead and turn there and we'll read it together. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we'll take it down to verse number 14. Luke 3, 1 through 14. Hear God's word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Thus far, God's word. Well, almost two decades have passed since the close of chapter two, and clearly the times have changed. Almost three decades have passed since the end of chapter one, And with that, our last glimpse of John the Baptist. And clearly, the persons have changed, like John, who has grown up and matured. And like John's parents, his elderly parents, who are no longer on the biblical stage. As this new chapter begins, it's also clear that the political landscape has changed. The uh, rulers from the childhood of John and Jesus, 
Augustus and Quirinius, whose names always come to my mind in the sound of Linus's voice holding a blanket in the Charlie Brown special. They've been replaced by uh, the rulers of their adulthood with headline names like Tiberius, the second Roman emperor, who was fiscally savvy, militarily strong, and administratively effective. Pilate, a Roman knight who was politically well-connected and, as a result, well-protected. Herod, one of six from that famous family about which we read uh, in the Bible, who came from wealth and became a great builder as well as a great diplomat. Philip, an able ruler, led a modest life, was well-connected with his people. Licinius, about whom we know very little, but Annas and Caiaphas, uh, about whom we know quite a bit. Caiaphas was the high priest at this time, but, but Annas, his father-in-law, was the one who really wielded the power, beginning with his own pri- uh, high priesthood uh, and then continuing down through the years during which five of his sons served as high priest over the span of about six decades. So these were the power brokers of the day, the pace setters, the uh, button pushers, the influencers. And so it seems natural, at least for us, to assume that if God is going to speak to uh, that world in that particular day, he would do so to and through these people. But he doesn't. Instead of addressing the world on its terms by way of a politician, he does so on his terms by way of a prophet. And so we read in verses one and two that at the time when the uh, political and religious heavyweights were headquartered in cosmopolitan Rome or Jerusalem, that the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And in response to that word, the passage before us this morning reveals what John the Baptist did about that. See that there in verses three through six. What John the Baptist said about it, we'll see that in verses seven through nine. And then how the crowds responded to it all. That's in verses 10 through 14. And what we'll see is that what God wanted uh, from his people by way of that word all those years ago is the same thing that he wants from his people today. And what is it that God wants? God wants a people who are the real deal. He, he wants a people who will walk their talk, who will practice what they profess. Or to cast it in the negative, God doesn't want hypocrites. He, he doesn't want phonies. He doesn't want persons who say one thing and then end up doing another. Of course, that's a bane of every group. You know, the boy scout who is habitually unprepared or the girl scout who regularly fails to do a good turn or the Rotarian who doesn't put 
service above self. How much more then is this the case for the members of God's family who lead godless lives? I mean, wouldn't you say that seems to be the number one excuse given by those who don't want anything to do with the church? It's just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, to be clear, God doesn't expect perfection from his people. Uh, Jesus understood that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. James wrote, we all stumble in many ways. Paul confessed, uh, wretched man, that I, the very thing that I do not wish is the very thing that I end up doing. John the Apostle, not, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, I find to be very helpful on this matter in 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, where he wrote that on the one hand, God is an idealist. Uh, John picks up his pen and he writes, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, that's pretty clear. But he goes on to say, on the other hand, that God is also a, a realist. He says, but if anyone does sin, and the implication is, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. So God doesn't expect perfection of us, but he does expect growth. People who, as we'll see in verse number eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and who don't rationalize about their relationship with the Lord. Think about it on their own terms as opposed to his. So what God wanted from his people then is the same thing that he wants now. Men and women who are the real deal. Men and women who practice what they profess to believe. Now, before we go through this passage, I wanna share with you something that I think will help you understand it a little bit better. And I'm certain of that because it's something about which I have to be regularly reminded myself. And it's, it's simply this, that the bulk of the content in the first four books of the New Testament, even though they're in the New Testament, are really best understood in an Old Testament context. And especially the story of John the Baptist. Why is that? Well, consider this. John the Baptist was not a New Testament apostle, but rather an Old Testament prophet. In fact, uh, even though we find him in the New Testament, he was really the last of the Old Testament prophets and bore many of their characteristics. For example, his voice was prophetic, direct and declarative. His message was prophetic, one of repentance and renewal. His setting was prophetic, uh, even fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. His dress was prophetic, like that of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. In fact, concerning the Old Testament prophecy in which God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Jesus later said, among those born of women, there has arisen 
No one greater than John the Baptist. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Finally, John the Baptist's arrival was prophetic, fulfilling the words spoken about him by his father Zechariah even before he was born. So John the Baptist was the last prophet. He was the greatest prophet. He was really the most unusual prophet because while the main job, not the only job, but the main job of an Old Testament prophet was to turn people back to God's written word as delivered at Sinai, John's job was to get people to look not back, but ahead to God's word incarnate, uh, whose ministry he had come to introduce. Now, why is all that helpful to know? It's helpful to know because first, it reminds us that even though they're found in the New Testament, the ministries of John the Baptist and even Jesus really occur in an Old Testament context. And second, because it informs us that John the Baptist's voice and his dress and his manner do not constitute a normal method of New Testament ministry. This is a description of how John the Baptist conducted his ministry. It's not a prescription for how we are to conduct our own. And I mention this because for many years I worked with well-meaning Uh, university students who viewed that pugnaciously prophetic John the Baptist in the wilderness and even the, the physically aggressive Jesus in the temple as models for modern day ministry. But John was an Old Testament prophet whose words and manner were best understood by God's people living in an Old Testament world. And this is still an Old Testament world. But something and someone better were coming. The word of the Lord that came to John the Baptist in the wilderness would raise the curtain on both those things. So, in response to God's word, let's see what John the Baptist did about it, said about it, and how the crowds responded to it all. Well, as to what John the Baptist did about the word, we we see here that He was obedient. He was obedient to do what God asked him to do. So after uh, the bit there in verse two that reads, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist in the wilderness, John responds in verse three by going and doing, preaching. Now concerning that great task to which he was called, It's worth noting, I think, that there's no mention that John the Baptist had any formal theological training to do it. In fact, unlike those uh, whose names are listed in verses one and two, John the Baptist doesn't have a title. And in verse four, he is merely referred to as a voice. John's not identified as a scribe. He's not identified as a rabbi. He's not identified as a a priest. But none of that makes any difference to God. 
And, and there's a track record to prove that fact. Consider Moses, who before assuming the role of a prophet, was a rancher. But David was a shepherd. Amos was a farmer. Consider that over the last three centuries, the men who have spoken to more people about Christ in each one were men who had no uh, seminary training. Uh, back in the 1700s, that was William Carey. He was a shoemaker. In the 1800s, that was D.L. Moody. He was a shoe salesman. In the 1900s, that was Billy Graham, who sold brushes from door to door and struggled as a student. Now, what I'm not saying is that God doesn't use those with titles and seminary degrees to do his work. But what I am saying is that more than these, and sometimes despite these, God looks for and uses men and women who are serious about his word and obedient to it. I was thinking on this this morning uh, on a couple of accounts. One, that makes all of us here great candidates to do God's work. And it reminded me of when we lived in England. In 1999, so right on the edge of a whole new millennium, and in England, where there is no separation between church and state, there was a big contest to write a millennial hymn. And a woman uh, in the church to which we went wrote the winning hymn. And I'm not talking about the, the hymn setting, I mean the hymn text. And it was beautiful, and it was biblical, and it was theological, it was rich in every way. And she became well-known. And you know what she did at our church? She was the janitor. God uses people, like Hillary Jolly. That's her name. We're serious about God's word and obedient to work it out with the talent that he's given to them. So that's the first way in which John the Baptist responded to God's word in the wilderness. He received it and with no apparent formal training was obedient to it. John did what God told him to do. Second, as to what John the Baptist said about the word, he was obedient to say what God wanted him to say. In general terms, we see there in verse number three, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse four, we see it was for the express purpose to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, since early in the Old Testament, baptism or washing, uh, Exodus 19 to be exact, was a sign of spiritual preparation. But John's baptism was unique in that it signaled a, a repentance, uh, a holistic turn from one's rebellion, whether great or small, that prepared one to meet the person for whom they had been waiting since Genesis chapter three. Uh, the, 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 the sunrise from on high, as John's father had put it in chapter one, who would come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
So John's baptism was one of unprecedented preparation and profound anticipation. So that's what John said in general. But before we look at what he said in specific, I I want you to notice two things. First, doing and speaking God's word go hand in hand. They're, They're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. People who do and speak God's word, who practice what they preach, are the real deal. They're not hypocrites. John the Baptist was the real deal. His actions backed up his words. He exemplified the kind of person he was calling uh, his audience to be. Number two, and as we'll see in a moment, God's word is for everybody, and it requires a response from everybody. Unlike the pop religions of that day, which were shrouded in mystery, the pop religion of our day, which is sated in spirituality, both of which very private, God's word was for everybody. You see there in verse six, John said it's a word for all flesh. In Luke's second volume, Jesus said it was a message to be taken to the ends of the earth the contents of which Paul declared had not been done in a corner. (laughs) They'd been done out in the open. So God's word is a public word. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm gonna let it shine. That's the nature of this word. But not only is it a word for everybody, it's a word that requires a response from Everybody, from the unnamed uh, masses who ventured out to hear John the Baptist preach to the great names of that day, some of whom are listed there in verses one and two, who would become infamous for their response to that word. So John the Baptist was obedient to walk his talk, to proclaim a word for everybody that demanded a response from everybody. In verse three, That word is explained in general. Now as we look at verses seven through nine, we see that that word is explained in four specific parts. Notice in verse seven, John begins with an accusation. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. (laughs) What does that even mean? That is not a way to win friends and influence enemies, so it seems. But the Old Testament prophets, um, Isaiah in particular, Jeremiah as well, likened those who opposed God to snakes. In fact, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter three and find that the crafty, duplicitous adversary of God who presents himself to our first parents did so as a what? As a snake as a serpent, as a viper. So while John's accusation is stinging, it is certainly in keeping with that which he means and God means to identify in his people, that from which they're to repent, duplicity, 
hypocrisy, phoniness. It's a prophetic word that John is speaking that's being applied to them. This isn't something they're reading about some other people in time. He's now speaking this about them, and they understood that. So John follows his accusation with a question, and the question is this. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And the implied answer is, it's not me. It's not me because God's wrath is impossible to escape. Baptism alone for which you're coming out can't save you, can't make things right with God, can't liberate you from the wrath that is to come on the last day. But that which baptism represents, the heart of baptism, real, mind-changing, heartfelt repentance can. And so he goes on in verse eight, now with an exhortation. So bear fruits in keeping with Repentance, real, heartfelt repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. Or I grew up at Grace E.V. Free. Or we graduated from Biola University. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, members for Grace, graduates for Biola. John's preaching clearly exposes a religious pretentiousness, phoniness, posturing that so easily occurs among God's people. In fact, John's preaching not only exposed it, he shined a bright light on it because there were really few, if any, distractions to encumber it. He led a simple life. He ministered in a simple setting. He was in no way connected to the establishment. He wasn't getting rich on this gig. I mean, there was nothing in his life that really encumbered his message. He was the real deal. He, he spoke it. He got out of the way as he did, and people could receive it full force. And so he wraps up his sermon with a warning. You can see it there in verse number nine. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit it's cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, this is prophetic terminology that John's audience understood because they'd heard it before. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos all use that kind of language. Jesus is going to use that kind of language in chapters 6 and 13 and famously in John 15. Trees that don't bear good fruit whack, they go down. When we cleared our property in Indiana to build our house, we took down a number of apple trees. And you say, oh, that sounds like Eden. Why would you cut down apple trees? Well, they were wonderfully fragrant in the springtime when the blossoms came out. And some of them were beautifully situated there on the property, but the fruit from those apples, or from those trees, no good. Uh, their uh, form was misshapen, their skin was mottled, their growth was stunted, 
and they just didn't taste good. So we cut them down, and we burned them up. And John the Baptist's audience got, they were riveted. Uh, they, They questioned neither the reality of the last day nor the ultimate and fiery judgment that's a part of it. Which uh, can assault our cultural sensibilities, right? We can find that reprehensible. Yeah, I I don't want to be scared into heaven. Don't, Don't give me talk of fire and hell and all that. I had a pastor friend who referred to hell in one of his sermons, and and as he did, he, uh, in a kind of verbally parenthetical kind of a way, uh, assumed the voice of one who was listening to him and said, "Don't, don't try to scare me. And then resuming his own voice, he said, I'd like to scare you, but the problem is you won't listen to me. John the Baptist's audience was listening. They took it all in. And they assimilated it. And here's how they responded. Third and finally. They all responded with the same question. See it there in verse number 10. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And in verse 12, the tax collector said to him, what shall we do? Verse 14, the soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And that's the question that should be the end game of every sermon. It certainly was with Jesus, as we'll see in chapters 10 and 18, as well as the apostles, namely Peter and Paul, and it certainly should be with everybody who steps up to this lectern. Preaching demands a response concerning our thinking or our behaving or, or both. In fact, this is in part what grace groups are for. Not to rehash the morning sermon, but to ask the question, what shall we do? What, what does this mean for our lives? How do we hammer this stuff out into shoe leather? Preaching which elicits that sort of response is preaching that with God's blessing prevents hypocrisy, promotes growth and becoming more and more the real deal. Well, John's audience knew that his message was one of repentance, that's clear. So what do they mean by asking, what what shall we do? I mean, it's obvious, repent, that's what you're supposed to do. But what they're really asking is, what does that look like in practice? Now, notice what John didn't say to them. He didn't say, well, it's becoming more religious. Uh, He didn't say, well, it means giving up your jobs and doing something really hard and difficult. Uh, He didn't say, it it means becoming an ascetic like me. Here's what he did say. To the crowds, he basically said in verse 11 that to live a life of authentic repentance is to be compassionate. If somebody is in need of clothes or food, give it to them. There's nothing new. John pulled it right out of the Bible. Jesus would do the same. The apostles would follow suit. In fact, Jesus summed it up best when he said, you know, do to other people what you would like them to do to you. To the tax collectors who were known for their graft and their greed, 
or hated by Jews and non-Jews alike, John basically said in verse 13 that to live a life of authentic repentance is to be honest. Don't, don't take more than you're supposed to. That they were engaged with something back then that was known as tax farming. <laughs> they harvested all kinds of money from people. He said, no, just be honest. Take, don't, don't, don't take any more than you need. In fact, when we get to chapter 19, we'll be introduced to Zacchaeus, who became the model of a truly repentant tax collector. To the soldiers, uh, a term that's literally those in service. So it could be a police, a guard, a combatant, uh, who at that time were known for their aggressiveness, would take advantage of private citizens in any one of a number of ways. John basically said there in verse 14 that to live a life of authentic repentance is to be kind and be content with what you have. When we get to volume two, uh, Luke will say in Acts 10 that the story of uh, Cornelius is one that uh, he was an exemplar of uh, that, that kind of soldier. So, in sum, God's Old Testament word through John the Baptist called God's people to repentance, to practice what they profess, to walk their talk, to show themselves to be the real deal from the inside out, and he called them to do this in preparation for the arrival of Jesus at the time of his first advent. In the same way, God's New Testament word through this pulpit, through pulpits across America and around the world call us to repentance, to, to say no to hypocrisy and the sins that so easily entangle us and to say yes to compassion and honesty and kindness and contentment from the inside out, which is the only place where that kind of help is going to come. Certainly by way of God's word, but only with the help of his spirit because we can't do it on our own. All of which is done in preparation for the return of Jesus at his second advent. The day and the hour of which is unknown, but the aim of which is certain. It's going to bring an end to our crippled cosmos and usher in the arrival of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells.